If you would like to borrow a Bible, will you please raise your hand? That way you can follow along as we uh, go through the sermon. Good to see you here for the new year. I know some of you may be visiting for the first time and, and uh, wondering why most of us are sitting down here. We're just trying to be close today. And next week, uh, more of our brothers and sisters in Christ will be coming back from their holiday, and the students from Northwestern and other campuses will be back next week. So we're just kind of being cozy here this morning. I know some of you um, are new and you're wondering, okay, what is this church about? How do we get involved? I just want to encourage you that any growth in Christ for you— being a part of our church will happen here on Sunday mornings and also happen as you live uh, life in our ethos communities. It's similar to small groups you may have heard of in other churches. But I want to encourage you to, to get into an ethos community and live life with your other brothers and sisters to be encouraged and to grow in Christ and, and grow in your knowledge of the Word and your knowledge of uh, serving the Lord. One of the blessings of our church um, is that we are intentionally set up in a particular way where it's a training ground for future pastors, future missionaries, and church leaders. Uh, that means that I, as the, um, the, the, the main preaching pastor, don't preach every week. I, I turn over the pulpit to a variety of, of gifted uh, preachers to be equipped to, uh, to get practices they are going to go out and lead their churches one day. And this morning, you have the opportunity to hear from a, a very gifted future leader our preacher this morning is, is Matt Swell, and Matt is a former intern here at EBF who currently teaches Bible at a Christian school. He teaches a 7th grade and 8th grade and 10th and grade, and Matt is married to Jackie, and I don't know if you, if you know these two, but I, I am, uh, they, they're, they're like some of the nicest, kindest, most gracious people I've ever met, I, and I'm not just saying that, really. I'm like, you guys are so nice. How do you do that? Man, it's wonderful. And, and, I, and, I, and I got to work with Matt, and I see the way he ministers to others. And I, I'm not just saying this, but I desire to personally imitate Matt as he imitates Christ. And he's like way younger than me, but I still want to imitate him and the way he's compassionate and caring for other people, the way he loves other people. He's patient, takes the time to teach them. And, and I think you're going to get a lot this morning as he brings you the word. So, Matt, come up here and bring us the word, bro. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate y'all sitting close, making the rookie preacher feel cozy. Um, as Jason said, I, I teach 7th, 8th, and 10th grade Bible. Uh, my other job, that's part-time, my other job is uh, in after-school care with mostly kindergartners. And that's, so that's where I do most of my learning, and uh, that's where I've learned about the theology of kindergartners. What kind of, what's going on in their heads regarding the Lord? Uh, so one day I noticed two kids sort of in a, a, a debate format going back and forth. And before I could even interject, uh, one of them said, Mr. Swale, does God have a backpack? I, said, I say he has a backpack because God has everything he needs. But he, said, but, but he says God doesn't need a backpack, so he doesn't have one. So I'm thinking, okay, the omnipotence of God has everything he needs, but then again, he's sufficient, he needs nothing. Okay, that's good. Uh, another time I spoke to a girl named Jasmine, and I said, 
Jasmine, do you believe in Jesus? And she said, yes, I believe in Jesus. But I also believe in his birthday. I said, okay. Christmas is pretty important in the theology of kindergartners. Uh, the only time I was unsettled was when I was teaching about Christmas, talking to the kids about the Savior. Uh, he came down uh, before coming to earth, before entering Mary's womb and becoming a baby. He was uh, seated on the throne in heaven. He was receiving all the glory that was due his name and uh, 24-7 receiving the glory that, that he deserved. So he always existed. I said, Jesus always existed. And little hand in front of me said, yeah, just like Santa. That's, uh, they're, they're making connections. They're making connections. So if you're, uh, just throw it out there. Jackie and I disagree on Santa. What do we, you know, how do we handle that tradition? How do we handle that, that cultural tradition? But anyways, uh, Pastor Jason was very kind and, uh, uh, saying that I'm a nice person, and I'll confess that's not always the case. One particular area that this shows up in is lineup time with the kindergartners. Uh, I found that one of the articles on which a kindergartner's day stands and falls is lineup time. Am I first in line? If not first, do I have a favorable position in line? There are many tears shed over this, uh, over this issue. And so I've made it my personal mission to make the straightest possible kindergarten lines. Uh, one day, it was so straight, I got up myself when I said, guys, stay right there, i got to take a picture of this. This is great. Um, but what I've found is, if I, as the teacher, am not continually prog- programming and, and getting that line right, if I turn around for just a second, unlock a door or, or what have you, the line is going to deteriorate. There's a kid now running over there, slipping on the ice or... Or now it's a kind of a banana lineup. Guys, we've got to straighten this thing out. Let's get it straight. So that's the time, one of the times that I'm not nice. Uh, and it's, a, it's, it's simple, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking to myself about how the, if I'm not continually programming this line, it's going to deteriorate. And I, and, I, and I say that just to kind of transition into what we're talking about today. I don't think I have to argue with you and convince you that this is the condition of our heart as it pertains to joining God's mission in the world. Without constant programming, we're not going to stay straight and be sacrificially engaged in what God's doing in the world. Left alone long enough, we're going to deteriorate. Little things are going to slip in our lives, and we're not going to be engaging as we could and as we should. Without looking at Jesus and his mission and being programmed by Jesus and his mission, Something else or someone else will program us. We need to be looking at Jesus. What is the nature of his mission? What did he do when he came to earth? And that shows us how we need to act. That shows us how we need to live. And so today, uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew 4. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 4. Uh, And in Matthew 4, there are four stories that give us a snapshot of, not an exhaustive look, but a snapshot of the ethos of Jesus' mission. The ethos of Jesus' mission. And if we look at Jesus and his mission, and they're not programming our lives, something else will be. Something else will be. So we got four stories here uh, that are going to give us a shot, a snapshot of the ethos of Jesus' mission. Um, there are buzzwords that you're going to hear a lot in this church if you're new. Ethos is one of them. 
uh, our ethos communities, uh, help us uh, try to embody and, and have the, the, the ethos or the, the culture that we want to be as a church. We try to work that out together as a community. Uh, we talk about the mission of God quite a bit here. And Pastor John a few weeks ago gave a great definition of the mission of God. When we say that, we're talking about God being in the process of making all things new in Christ. God being in the process of making all things new in Christ. And so he's been about that ever since Genesis, and he's going to wrap it up in Revelation. But a special phase of that mission came about when Jesus came to earth. He's making all things new in Christ. So we know that, that something, uh, something crucial happened when Jesus came to earth regarding that mission. And uh, so Jesus takes that mission that's been going on in all of Scripture to a whole new level. Uh, because it's such an important mission, because Jesus' role is so important, he undergoes this period of preparation. And so last week, y'all heard a sermon on uh, Matthew 3. And in, in 3 verse 1, we begin this, this intense period of preparation for Jesus' ministry. It begins with the preaching of John the Baptist, continues with uh, the account of Jesus' baptism, and today we're going to continue, half of, of Matthew 4 is going to be talking about this period of preparation for Jesus' ministry. Um, there are two, you might think it's kind of weird, okay, why is the Messiah, why is the perfect Savior having to be prepared? And there are two main reasons this comes about. One is to establish the orientation or the trajectory of his mission, okay? Establish what is his mission going to be like. So that's why this is such a cool text for us to look at today, because we're going to see the ethos of his mission, because that's set up and established here in preparation, as we see what is the direction Jesus will be going in. And finally, and crucially for our first story today, uh, this period of preparation is to test Jesus' faithfulness to that orientation of mission. Uh, and it's going to be packed with Old Testament themes and Old Testament quotations uh, because Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the original readers were very well versed in the Old Testament scriptures. And uh, so when we look at some of those Old Testament themes that come up, we're going to see uh, that it adds clarity to what we understand about the ethos of Jesus' mission. Uh, so open your Bibles. Hopefully you already did. Matthew 4. And we're going to take them one at a time. We've got four stories here. We'll go one at a time, and we'll look at what do we learn about the ethos of Jesus' mission, and what does that have to do with the ethos of our mission here in Evanston, wherever you're coming from, as you try to live out the mission of God. Matthew 4. Verse 1, and we'll go through verse 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put, your, put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, 
angels came and were ministering to him. To understand this account, to understand this story, we have to realize its connection to the story before it, which is the baptism of Jesus. We already talked about how those are both periods of preparation for Jesus' ministry. Um, But if you look at verse 3, this this issue of son, Jesus as God's son, comes up both in the baptism and in the temptation of Jesus. So look back at uh, verse 17 of chapter 3. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In this verse are packed two allusions to the Old Testament that are so important to understand the orientation of Jesus' ministry. Two verses from the Old Testament alluded to. Psalm 2-7, which talks about Jesus being an exalted king, the Messiah being an exalted king, and then Isaiah 42-1, which talks about him being a suffering and humble servant. So we see right off the bat the orientation of Jesus' ministry is going to be as, as the exalted king, the humble servant, but he's just been baptized, right? Something that John pointed out, Jesus, you don't need to be baptized. So he's humbling himself, okay? Eventually, he will reign on high and put everything right. But for the time being, in his ministry, he's walking this humble path of suffering. That path of suffering will lead to being exalted above everything, recognized by everyone as the king. But his ministry will be marked by humility and suffering. So then when we come to the temptations, uh, this sonship uh, from, from the devil is the immediate topic. If you are the son of God. Now he's not so much questioning, trying to get Jesus to doubt if he is the son. But what the topic is, is okay, you are the son, but what, but what kind of son will you be? You are, you're the son of God, but what will the implications of that be? How will you work that out? How will you live as the son of God? So he's not questioning its truth, but its implications to incite misuse. So let's look at each temptation one by one. The first temptation, uh, make stone out of bread. And so if you read through the rest of Matthew, you'll find out that there's nothing inherently wrong with bread making. Jesus is going to go on to feed 5,000 by, by turning five loaves and two fish into bread. So it's okay for him to make bread. But, so what's going on here? He realizes that in this period of preparation, and in as much as his, his, the ethos of his mission will be one of self-sacrifice and humility, it's time to abstain. It's time to humble himself, time to sacrifice, not time to indulge. Furthermore, if he were to make bread out of stone, and, and we see this when he feeds the 5,000. People come to him and they're thinking, wow, what a great king. If he can make bread out of nothing, we'll follow this guy, and that'll, that'll be a good kingdom. Uh, so that it, wrapped up in here could be that temptation also by the devil to, to kind of be a wonder worker who will be able to gain a following. So his reply is from Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, so here Jesus says, I'm gonna, I, I know the word too well to fall into that trap. I'm going to follow what I know to be the orientation of my ministry, of my mission, and, uh, and will ab- abstain and, and, and go the way of self-sacrifice rather than indulgence. Uh, so we see that Jesus believes that obedience to God's word is more important than eating. Do you believe that? Do you believe that 
to obey God's word is, is more life-giving and more important than even the food that we eat. Moving on to temptation number two, uh, he's taken to the pinnacle of the temple, and, and now scripture is used to support the devil's temptation. And he says, throw yourself down because the angels will come and they'll attend to you. If you look forward to verse 11, it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So again, there's nothing inherently wrong with the Messiah being ministered to or attended to by angels. But again, it's a misuse of his messianic power that the devil's trying to get him to, to do here. Uh, in the first century, there's an expectation that the Messiah would descend onto the Mount of Olives, enter the Shushan Gate, which was left open, it was left ajar, in expectation of the Messiah coming. So if Jesus had done this, if he had made a spectacle in front of everybody at the temple by, by coming down and the angels ministering to him, he would have had an immediate following. They would have said, wow, he's the Messiah. All right, we're with him, we're on board. But here Jesus realizes that spectacles and wonder working are not how he's going to gain a following. That's not what his mission is about. He understands that it's about self-sacrifice, about humility, and it's a road that leads to the cross, that road marked by suffering that leads to the cross. So he replies, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's a, a reference to uh, a story in the Old Testament where Israel had tested God and said, God, we don't believe that, that you're with us. Give us a sign. So Jesus is saying, I don't need, I don't need a, a, a miracle. I don't need a sign to know that the Lord's with me. I'm going to walk the path that I know my ministry is supposed to be marked by. Uh, finally, temptation number three, this temptation to worship, bow down and worship Satan and, uh, and have all the kingdoms of the world subject to him. Uh, if you, at the end of Matthew, uh, Matthew 28:18, Jesus will say, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So for Jesus to have authority is not bad. He's going to have all authority. He's going to rule over all, but the path to that is going to be the suffering of the, the road to the cross. If he did have this power immediately here during the temptations, he could theoretically free captive Israel, who is captive to Rome. He could probably help a lot of people, probably feed a lot of hungry folks, probably uh, do a lot of good, but he recognizes that that would be a misuse of his power and the path to the, that social revolution isn't going to solve man's problems. The road to the cross where he'll deal with sin, where he'll deal with the root issue, is the path that he needs to walk and the path that he will. There are three important Old Testament allusions here. Um, so Jesus passes through the waters of baptism and proceeds into the wilderness for, to be tested for a period of 40. Does it sound familiar? Anyone else you can remember in the Bible who passes through the waters into the wilderness for a, a period of testing of, of 40? That'd be Israel, right? Uh, in the Exodus, we have the stories of their testing and failure in the wilderness. And uh, the passages that Jesus quotes actually refer back to three times when Israel was tested and they failed. Deuteronomy 6 through 8, where Jesus quotes, gives the, the lessons they were supposed to learn from that. So the idea here is Israel had a mission they had a part in God's mission, and they failed. Jesus learned the lessons they were supposed to learn. He understands them deeply, and he won't fail in his mission. He won't waver. Another reference is to, to Moses. You see there uh, where it says 40 days and 40 nights. 
It's how long Jesus fasted. That's also how long Moses fasted in the wilderness uh, to prepare to give the law to the Israelites and lead them into the promised land. That was his part in the mission of God. But he failed because of, uh, because of uh, disobeying God, not believing the, the account where he strikes the rock rather than speaking to it. Uh, and then finally, there's one more allusion to the Old Testament that kind of give, adds some, some clarity and some color to this passage, and that is uh, King David. If you look at 1 Samuel 16 and 17, David is selected by God, he's anointed by the Holy Spirit, and then he proves himself in battle in chapter 17 with Goliath. And Jesus here is selected by God, anointed by the Holy Spirit in his baptism, and goes on to prove himself in this conflict with the devil. The difference is, and, and that's, this is why it's so cool that Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. The difference is, if you look at Deuteronomy seventeen eighteen, each king of Israel was supposed to write for themselves a copy of the book of the law, write for themselves a copy of Deuteronomy, and then read it every day, so that they would know deeply what their part is in the mission of God. And we know that David failed because of moral failures. But Jesus here, three times quoting Deuteronomy, we realize, wow, this is the king who knows his mission. This is the king who, unlike any king in Israel's history who always failed, this is the king who knows his mission and will carry it out perfectly. So if you're following along in the bulletin with the, uh, with the chart there, there are three things that we learn here about Jesus' mission in, in Matthew. Uh, so the ethos of Jesus' mission in the book of Matthew. The first is integrity for mission. Integrity for mission. Jesus uh, has the weight of the salvation of the world on his shoulders. If he doesn't, uh, if he doesn't carry out his mission well, then, then, then there's no possibility of salvation because he wouldn't be that spotless lamb that's required for the sacrifice for our sins. And so we see that integrity and holiness are not an end in themselves, but they're in the context of mission. So Jesus is not quoting scripture so he can be holy. He's, he's being holy, maintaining integrity, so he can carry out his mission. And so as it pertains to our mission in Evanston, integrity is a necessary prerequisite for us to carry out our mission here. People in Evanston need us to carry out our, our part in God's mission well. And we can't do that if we're not living in holiness and integrity. So what you do in front of the computer, how you treat your husband, how you treat your wife, your eating habits, your media intake, the movies you watch, the thoughts you think concerning the people around you, people at work, your boss, those have everything to do with the way you carry out your part in the mission of God. And we see that here exemplified in Jesus. Number two there is missional integrity. So not only is he not going to sin, because he needs to, be, uh, needs to be faithful and holy for this mission. But he's sticking to his mission. He's sticking to what his mission is supposed to be characterized by. And we see that that's self-sacrifice and humility. That call is issued by Jesus to us as well. In uh, Matthew 16, 24 through 26, we see, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? 
The ethos of our mission is supposed to be marked by self-sacrifice and humility, just like Jesus was. So are you sacrificing for God's mission? Is your involvement in the mission of God costing you anything? If it's not, it's time to repent and realize you need to get in the game Get in on what God's doing and participate, and it's going to cost you. It's going, there's going to be self-sacrifice involved. Number three there, see that Jesus is victorious in mission. Where everyone else failed, every human being ever involved in the mission of God up to this point has failed. But Jesus Christ is victorious. If he had failed, salvation failed. This is great for us that Jesus is victorious in mission because we fail often in carrying out our mission. We don't always sacrifice in the way necessary to be a part of God's mission. We don't always have the integrity necessary to live in accordance with our part in the mission of God. But Jesus, our great high priest, was tempted in the same way, in all the ways that we were, yet without sin. So he can sympathize with us as we struggle to, to do what we're supposed to do and joining God's mission in the world. But he gives us hope of living well missionally. We've, we've become one with the Savior. Read on in the New Testament, and over 200 times you'll see this phrase, in Christ, in him, in the beloved, just especially in Paul's writings, time after time, you're in him, in him, in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ. We've been included in the great, victorious, missional king. He will not fail in his mission. His purposes in the world will not fail. So even though we stumble in many ways, we have hope that we can live well and participate in God's mission well because Jesus did it well and we're in him. Furthermore, the righteousness that Jesus accomplished by carrying out his mission perfectly is the reason we can be saved. Because he lived perfectly and accomplished the righteousness that no one had ever accomplished before, when we put our trust in Jesus, because of his death on the cross and his resurrection, we can be absolved or forgiven of our sins. But then that righteousness that we need to be right with God, that Jesus alone accomplished, is given to us. It's imputed to our account. So that Jesus is victorious in mission, here in Matthew 4, makes all the difference for the Christian life. It's why we can, be, we can be right with God, and it's why we can have any hope of carrying out God's mission as we've been called to do. Uh, if Jesus and his mission are not programming your life, something or someone else will. Let's move on to the second story here in Matthew 4. We'll read verses 12 through 16. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region region and shadow of death, on them... A light has dawned. The beginning here, we see that John the Baptist is put in prison. And so this is kind of a a transitional passage in the the period of preparation for Jesus because John the Baptist, as you know from last week, played a vital role in the preparation of Jesus the Messiah. So him kind of being brought 
out of the spotlight. Uh, John the Baptist uh, is, is sort of a signal that that period's coming to a close. So 12 through 16 is the last part of the preparation of Jesus. Uh, Jesus uh, grew up in Nazareth, which was sort of an agricultural town, a suburb of the old capital of Galilee, and he moves to Capernaum, which is by the sea. That was a major fishing and trade center. There was a trade route from the Mediterranean that went through there. So there's a lot of, just a lot of people there. It was, it was kind of a, um, a strategic place for Jesus to begin his ministry. Um, I want to look at Isaiah's prophecy here. Uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, they're called, it's called Galilee of the Gentiles and a place of darkness. The reason for that is in Isaiah's day, he's prophesying the destruction it's going to happen to Israel because of their sin. So the nation of Assyria came and destroyed this region, Zebulun and Naphtali. And uh, part, of their, part, of, part of what they did in, to their enemies was they infiltrated them with foreign people so that there would be incredible foreign influence in that area. So this is an area with, by Jesus' day, at least half of their population is Gentile. So for Israel, a, a, a Jewish nation, uh, this is a big deal. This contributes... Uh, greatly to them being sort of off the map politically, but also off the map uh, on the religious scene. The religious leaders aren't thinking a whole lot of this area and what's coming out of that area. So they're, they're an underdog of sorts uh, and very, very dark spiritually. Uh, this prophecy here from Isaiah comes from Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Uh, Chanel... A couple weeks ago, read this, this passage from Isaiah 9, but read it through to verses 6 and 7. A famous, famous Christmas passage where it says, For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. So the idea here is a light has come on in Galilee. And we, you see in the rest of that prophecy, the light is the Messiah. The light is Jesus himself. So, so a light has dawned. In Galilee, a light has dawned in Zebulun and Naphtali, and it's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus himself. This is a place that, that ultimately, if you read on to Matthew 11, is going to reject Jesus at large. Capernaum, he's gonna, Jesus is going uh, to speak against one day and say, Woe to you, because I did so many miracles among you, but you still rejected me. And yet this place, an underdog, and, and, and many people won't even believe in the Messiah. They still have this privileged position in the unfolding of the plan of God. Jesus is going to begin his ministry in their midst. And so regarding the ethos of Jesus' mission, we see that Jesus delights in being a light in dark places. He delights in being a light in dark places. So what does that mean for us? It means you never know where Jesus might use you to shine his light uh, an example that came to mind is in, in Louisiana, Angola prison used to be known as the bloodiest prison in the United States, uh, but now thousands of inmates have come to Christ. It's the, the home now of uh, seminary and Bible college extension classes where these, these new believers in the prison can be trained up in the ministry. Uh, who would have thought the bloodiest prison in the United States would then be a place of revival where God would work and bring many to him? Jesus takes great delight 
and shining in dark places. But the people who were involved in this sort of thing, the people who were involved in, in Jesus showing up in a dark place, make sacrifices to be involved in God's mission there. So is your condo building, your apartment building, a pretty dark place because the, the spiritual condition of the people around you, your workplace, uh, the gym you work out at, dark places, Jesus takes great delight in shining there and, and, and making himself known there. But the people who are going to be involved in that, be involved in that great glorious thing for Jesus happening, are going to be the ones who make sacrifices, returning to what we talked about in the first uh, the first section. And if Jesus and his mission are not programming us, something or someone else will, and we won't be in a position to be a part of that mission that God is advancing. Uh, read verse 17 real quick. And uh, this is, this is a, a pivot point in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, so we'll, I'll, there'll be two more stories after that, but let's just read it real quick and we'll talk about it briefly. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus, he was being prepared for ministry, being prepared for his mission. Now he's in, in the place to begin it. He's in Galilee, and here he fires it up and gets it going. So the analogy I kind of thought of with that is it, it's, uh, it's like a, Jesus' ministry is kind of like a car being prepared, okay? So the preparation period is getting all ready, getting all tuned up. Now it's brought to the starting block here in Galilee, ready to go. And now here in verse 17, throws it in gear, and, and, and we're off. He's preaching, and, and we'll see in, in the coming stories here, uh, at, a, at a, a tiring speed, a tiring pace, Jesus is beginning his ministry. Uh, it says from that time on, which, which shows that it's the end of something and the beginning of something new. He began to preach, it says. This is a summary of Jesus preaching. Um, the main speeches in Matthew are going to kind of fill in the blank. So he's preaching about the kingdom, but, uh, but we'll, we'll learn more and more about that kingdom throughout Matthew. This is the same phrase used by John the Baptist in, uh, in 3 verse 2. John the Baptist also said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The difference is John the Baptist is pointing to Jesus, and Jesus is the arrival of the kingdom of God. In Jesus Christ, the saving reign of God has arrived. Not in the fullness that it will be one day. We talked about that. Jesus uh, will be exalted and will put everything right one day. That's when the kingdom of God will be here in its fullness. But in Jesus, the saving reign of God has arrived. And you begin to see the effects of that as he ministers. Uh, so let's move on to the third story. We've got to move a bit quicker here. Uh, verses 18 through 22. While, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the passage that changes everything for you and I. Okay, This is the passage that just completely rocks this whole issue of Jesus being on a mission. So Jesus is on a mission, but here we find out he's going to call men and women to join him in that mission. Men and women will be the agent, 
the servants of and the ones who carry out that mission with Jesus. It's not just the mission of Jesus off in the abstract far from us. Now he's calling people to join him in that mission, to be a part of what God's doing. The men who received this call by Jesus would be aware of what he's doing, uh, but they would also be aware that Jesus is doing it in, in an absurd fashion. In those days, students would go up to rabbis, and they would be the ones to ask the rabbi, can I, can I follow you? And they would go with him. They would absorb his teachings, walk with them, be with them all the time. But here Jesus takes the initiative. He's the one who's going to pursue people, involve them in his mission, and make them into the fishers of men he wants them to be. Look at this verse, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Uh, ran across a, a great quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, when Christ calls us by his grace, we ought to think of what he can make of us. It is not follow me, uh, it, it is follow me and I will make you. It is not follow me because of what you are already. It is not follow me because you may make something of yourselves, but it's follow me because of what I will make you into. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. The transformative goal of following Jesus is that these people become fishers of men. So when, when called by Jesus to be involved in his mission, his goal in his followers is to make them into fishers of men. He's about gathering men. He's about saving men. And now he's involving people in that. So are you gathering men? Are you calling other people? to follow Jesus as you've decided to do? If not, there's a sense in which you're, you're stopping short of what Jesus' is, goal is in his followers, to make them fishers of men. His goal is to, to involve us in his mission so that we're doing what he's about and gathering men to understand that he's the Messiah, he's the light of the world, he's the only way sins can be forgiven, and that he's on a mission in the world for his glory that we can be involved in. Uh, move on to the final story here, verses 23 through 25. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and pro proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is a summary statement of, of what characterized Jesus' ministry. So he went around teaching, which would be in the synagogues, explaining from the Old Testament scriptures who he is. But so that would be familiar to his audience. But then he took it a step further in proclaiming the gospel, saying, I'm the one who fulfills those scriptures. I'm the one in whom the whole Old Testament finds its fulfillment. So he's teaching something familiar with a view towards something unknown to them. Uh, furthermore, he's healing throughout all Galilee. So it's, this is an area of at least 45 miles north to south and 25 miles east to west. Uh, the, the confines of that region there's some difference on what different scholars said about that. It could, could have been as large as 70 miles north to south by 40 miles east to west. Over 200 villages, uh, at least 300,000 people. Josephus, uh, a Jewish historian, said 3 million people. Huge region, 
If Jesus were to go two villages per day, it would take him at least three months to go throughout all this region, but it says he's traveling throughout all Galilee. He's healing, performing miracles for those who are afflicted with various diseases. Uh, And he's preaching about the kingdom of God. So we already talked about the saving reign of God being present in Jesus the Messiah. Uh, But what's cool about these healings is it's, it's evidence that the kingdom is here. It's evidence that the kingdom is at hand. There will be a day when God's kingdom is fully established where everything wrong will be made right. Sickness will be no more. Sadness will be no more. But here in Jesus Christ, there, there's a glimpse of that. The kingdom of God is breaking into, into to our, our place and time, our, our world, and people are being healed. Uh, and, and God is pledging that he will finally deal with those things once and for all. Uh, the reason we experience those things is because we live in a fallen world, and Jesus will deal with the root of that fallenness, the sin that, that, that we all uh, are subject to, the suffering that we're all subject to, and he's going to deal with it. Uh, and so finally, uh, the last section there you have in your notes, Jesus' mission in Matthew in 4.17, we see that there's proclaiming the good news, but also he's making, or he, he's performing acts of compassion. And the way that, that that applies to us is that we see Jesus responding to what's not right. When something's not right, not the way God created it to be, Jesus responds to it in compassion. And uh, as followers of him, as people involved in his mission, our job is to, to proclaim the gospel, but also... To, uh, to respond to things in the world that are not right. So things like 29,000 children dying from pre- preventable causes every day. That ought to stir us. If we're being programmed by Jesus and his mission, it ought to stir us so we want to respond, so we want to do something about it. Children, precious little children, little girls being forced into prostitution. When you hear about these things going on around the world, you should... If you're being programmed by the mission of God, you should be be moved to respond. People in our town not having a home. Uh, Remember being a a greeter one day here at EBF, opening the door and and, and seeing a man walk across the street with icicles this long on his mustache. It's it's not good. That's not right. It shouldn't be that way. We need to be moved to respond. Uh, Angelina Jolie can respond to that stuff, but... As followers of Christ, are we going to respond redemptively with a view towards bringing people to wholeness and salvation in Jesus Christ? That's the work we're called to as as parts of the mission of God. Uh, So briefly, we've been able to look at the ethos of Jesus' mission in in a large chunk of Scripture, four different stories. We see what characterized his mission, and that ought to move us so that the ethos of our lives and, and our involvement in God's mission is marked by the same things. Uh, it may be that there are sins you need to repent of in order to be involved in God's mission. It may be that you need to make sacrifices for the gospel and its advancement. It may be that you need to start telling people in your sphere of influence about Jesus. It may be that you need to start acting and doing something and responding to the things that you see that are not right. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on him who, who, who paid the ultimate price so we could be right with him. We could be involved in what he's doing in the world. 
and uh, not just try to, to, to amend ourselves, but look to Jesus, allow him to do the work in us that's necessary, and then respond by joining him in what he's doing in the world. Uh, let's close in prayer. Father, we're grateful that Jesus followed his mission impeccably. He did things just right so that he could accomplish the salvation that we desperately needed, Lord. We're so grateful. Thank you for making us into people who are fit to to join your mission, to carry out your purposes in the world, God. And we want to make sacrifices to do that because we know the people around us desperately need it. They need you, Lord. So, So use us this week. Help us to make the changes necessary. In Jesus' name, amen.